Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest uh, this time is Chris Archer. Chris, thanks for joining us. Um, and we're going to look at something more, um, less spiritual than normal. <laughs> well, it's spiritual, but in a roundabout sort of way. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a battle that the New Zealanders were involved in in 1917 that most of us Kiwis have no idea about. And as, as Chris and I were meeting um, last weekend with the Israeli ambassador and a few other people to celebrate the anniversary of this battle, uh, Chris just mentioned that this would be a great opportunity for us. The more we know about it, the more we're able to interrelate with our Israeli hosts, uh, Israeli travellers, uh, guests, because they actually know about it. Some of them do. Yeah, but we don't. We never heard about it. No, mostly haven't. We might have heard the Australian story if we've got Australians, but we won't <laughs> have heard the New Zealand story. <laughs> so it's all to do with the Sinai um, campaign in World War I, 1917. Um, so let's let's go back a little bit before Sinai. Okay. Where were we as New Zealand right. armed forces? All right. Well, the, the story of World War One begins in 1914, as most of us know, um, when uh, Britain went to war. We all know the story. Went to war with Germany and Austria, Austro-Hungarian Empire, yep. um, and the New Zealanders, being part of what was then the British Empire were called to go and support the motherland in her fight with the Germans. Yeah. So the New Zealanders actually left, we, we call them the main body, right at the end of 1914, and they left on a fleet of ships, uh, quite, I think there was 23 ships, a very large number, uh, somewhere in the order of 4,000 men and 6,000 horses, which in itself was an extraordinary venture. Were they all, were they all their own horses too? Well, no, some of them were bought by the army. In fact, I heard from uh, people who were there at the time that said you couldn't buy a horse in New Zealand because the army had, had requisitioned them all. Yeah. So we all know that they got uh, to Egypt through the Suez Canal yep. uh, at the end of 1914. Um, and the point was they weren't properly trained at that stage. So they the plan was to train them in Egypt and then send them to the Western Front. That was the original yep. uh, plan. In fact, there was a brigade of mounted infantry, that was the horsemen, and there was a brigade of, of just foot soldiers. So there were really two brigades in the New Zealand Expeditionary Force. Leaving out just a little bit, the reason that, 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 that Egypt was so important, of course, was the Suez Canal, which was the British Empire's lifeline to India and uh, to the Pacific. So it was a strategic place to defend. Then we all know that in early April of 1915, the British Expeditionary Force went to Gallipoli. Yeah. And we know the story Not of Gallipoli. Well, New Zealanders are raised on the story of Gallipoli. It was a nine-month horrendous war. New Zealand lost 3,000, I think 700 mm. men. The Australians about 8,000. All in all, the British Empire lost something like 40,000 men before they finally had to de declare it a, a, a wasted effort and withdraw to Egypt. So that was in the early part of 1916. At that point, the New Zealand divided, the forces divided. Um, Sir Alexander Godley, who was in command of the New Zealand Army, a British, an English officer actually, took the infantry to the Western Front, but the mounted brigade of about two and a quarter thousand men, three regiments, stayed in Egypt alongside the Australians right. and alongside uh, a group of British horsemen that were called yeomanry. If you read yeomanry, they are the territorial 
horsemen of the British Empire. And actually, a large number of Indians, a lot of the Indian army was employed here. So the story then was defend the canal, but proactively to try and drive the Ottoman Turks out of the Sinai to protect the canal. Yeah, because we, I mean, we forget that the Ottomans owned all of that. Sure. All of that area. They even had legal claim to Egypt, but of course the British went to protect the canal on behalf of everybody else. So yeah. you couldn't exactly call it conquering, could you? <laughs> They very, appoint, very kind of them. Yeah, they appointed uh, a, um, a ruler who was sympathetic and sacked the yeah. previous one who wasn't. So there's politics and all yeah. of this stuff, isn't there? The problem with fighting in the desert was the lack of water. And so the British designed a railhead and a water pipeline that went 200 miles across the north of the Sinai. It peaked across and took about a year to get across there. An amazing story. And they took water from Egypt to the borders of Palestine. Okay. So naturally, the Ottoman Turks and the Germans, who were part and parcel of that whole engagement, uh, ran various uh, campaigns to try and break the British hold and, and attack the head of the rail. Yep. So the New Zealanders and the Australians were involved in those skirmishes right through 1916 up to the borders of Palestine, um, across the border of Palestine, they came across the city of Gaza. And Gaza is the city that uh, we've, we've seen. We've got a picture of Gaza somewhere here, Rob, haven't we? Or we didn't one, have one of these, we, we had a picture somewhere of Gaza. Anyway, Gaza was a city of 40,000 people at the time, but it was and always has been a stronghold right back into ancient days. So the British mounted an attack to capture Gaza and failed. Uh, not actually giving up quickly. They decided three weeks later to have another go and they lost worse than before. Oh dear. So they lost somewhere in the order of about, I think, 16,000 men. So what were the New Zealanders doing and what were the Australians doing at this time? Well, they were the spearhead of the British Army. Uh, so they were sent around further towards the north and east to prevent any Turkish excursion while the British were trying to no, capture so the Gaza. The British are trying to capture Gaza. The Australians and New Zealanders are sent off to the side to make sure no more Turks exactly. come in to support Gaza. Well, the horsemen are the mobile part yeah. of the army, aren't they? Uh, there were mechanised um, uh, transports. There were machine gun cars, but they couldn't operate in the sandy desert of the Sinai. When they got into Palestine and it was stony desert, then they could. Yeah. So more and more they become part of the story. But really, the story right through uh, to most to, to really late 1918 is about horsemen and horses, mm. and what it meant to go on what they called uh, sorties into the desert, and uh, um, they were without water. They had to take their own water. They had to take their own food. Uh, so really, the heat was terrible. The flies were terrible. Everything was terrible. And they'd usually get up three o'clock in the morning to go because they couldn't travel in the day, and they'd take out. Turkish outposts. So that was the story, right? Uh, the failure of the British army meant that the then commander of the Egypt Expeditionary Force, the EEF, got the sack, as did his field commander. Um, and uh, his name was Sir Archibald Murray. Don't have to worry about him because he's now not part of the story. He's gone. And a new man is appointed uh, who becomes the really the rallying general for that um uh, whole army. So is, it, is this Allenby? Allenby. Allenby, Allenby. is a moustached, good-looking, um, you know, yep. cavalry man. He's the man. And he comes in 
um, like the new broom to sweep clean and mostly to try and rebuild the the morale really, which yeah. was rock bottom. In fact, the British press was saying, was this going to be another Gallipoli? You know, it was looking really sort of quite yeah. sad for everybody. And there was a there's a funny story told that uh, Allenby was mobile with his with staff car. Yeah. And whenever he left his headquarters, his staff officers would relay information to the uh, commanders of whichever regiment or, or, or brigade he was heading for um, with the code "ball on the loose," B O L, <laughs> "ball on the loose," <laughs> and he would come and give everyone a stir up. Well, his plan, which was something that they worked through. Uh, from about June right through to um, September was not to have a third crack at Gaza straight away but to go 40 miles, 40 kilometres to the south and east to a place called Beersheva. Now, Beersheva was just an Arab town. It had no, it had very little in the way of commendations really yeah. um, but it did have water. Right. In fact, the wells of Abraham. But that, I mean, it's right from, the from Genesis. Beersheba, the, 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 exactly. the well of the oath or the well of seven. That's, that's yeah. right. The seven wells of Abraham were down there. Right. So it's an amazing thing if you think about it, isn't it? It's a, and it's a beautiful town now. I love the, the Anzac Park there when we went, uh, Sharon and I went in 2017 and just this yeah. beautiful, she loved the jacaranda trees. Well, she's into purple, it's, know, become an out, it's become an outpost of Australia. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, yes. Now, hang on. There's, there's a statue there of... An Australian on the horse yes. with, the, with the flag. Yes. If if I've got my story right, that's not an Aussie. That's a Kiwi who dressed in an Aussie uniform. Well, I, you, you know that story. I uh, I'm not sure about it myself, but but the, the the New Zealanders were involved in the place in a lot more significant way than uh, pretending to ride horses. <laughs> what again? The story was that there were two corps: the 21st Corps, 22nd Corps, uh, who had the job of capturing. Beersheba. So the British Army came in towards the western, towards the Gaza side of Beersheba. Yeah. And the New Zealanders and the Australians again were sent around to the east and the north. And their job was to capture a tell. A tell in, in Israel is like a hill. It's maybe the size of one of the little mountains you might find in Auckland. Yeah. Uh, you know, perhaps a bit smaller than that, really. But it's actually a hill that's man-made. Layers yeah. of civilization have built up on it over the millennia. So what's happened is, is, is a town's been built, the town's been destroyed, and then it's been built on top of, and then that town's been destroyed, and then it's been built on top of, and, and, and this has just built up this, this mound. I suppose archaeologists must love it, digging into tells. Well, yes, there's so many of them, it's hard to find um, ones that are really, really interesting. Nowadays, but probably yes, the original yes, yeah. Beersheba was up on the top of, or yeah. down in the bottom of what that, uh, that tell yeah. was and the Israelis have excavated it. Well, the story is that in order to be able to attack the city or the town of Beersheba, or Beersheba as the Arabs Beersheba, called it, yeah. the Israelis call it Beersheba, um, that hill, that tell had to be um, removed from the equation because the Turks had placed because their the machine Turks guns own, up yeah, there. Yeah. So guess who were who were the lucky guys who were given the task of driving the Turks off the tell? Oh, off the, the, driving the machine guns out. Yes, and, yeah, yes. That would be the British. Uh, no, no, it was us. Uh, the Australians. No, uh, no. Well, they were on standby in case they were needed, but it was the Auckland Regiment of the of the New Zealand Mounted Rifle Brigade that got the job. Yeah. 
and uh, you've been there, you know the deep waddies, the riverbeds yes. that wind through. Yeah. So in order to attack, attack that, they had to take their, they had to wind their way up the waterbeds to get maximum protection. And then it was just really bare knuckled courage to it's attack. Straight up. Straight yeah, up. There's nothing, nothing in, you know, nothing to hide behind. Yeah, so it took them the best part of the late morning and early afternoon to finish that job, by which time, I think if you read The Australian, it could have been around about 3.30 and the sun was not going to be up for that much longer. Yeah. Uh, and they still hadn't captured Beersheba. So the story is that um, the Australian Corps commander, um, Harry Chevelle, called in his brigade commander um, who, who was... Um, on hand and said, um, go straight at them, Grant. I think it was the 12th yeah. Light Regiment horse. So that's the famous story of the Australians charging across the plain, jumping over the trenches. Um, and they made some quite good movies of it, actually. Yeah. The, the, the movie's on there. So, okay, end of the story is they capture the wells, they take Beersheba. That's not the end of the problem because it's all the way up the line to Gaza. So the British then on the 6th of August come through, finally get through Gaza. But what's happening in the meantime is that the Australians and the New Zealanders, they're down in the south and east and they're sent across country to the, to the coastal plain of Palestine yep. uh, where, you know, most of the city's now on the edge of the Mediterranean. And um, their job is, is to try initially to cut off the retreating Turks but they're so exhausted from the battle, so depleted in terms of machine, of men and water, that they, they don't achieve that, really. They can just stand and watch the Turks fleeing into the Judean hills. Um, in in Uhurah. Yeah, that's right. Please the, don't the, come the, back. The, so, okay, so they continue up. Yep. They have a huge ride, I think something like 60 hours riding. One of the most extraordinary stories, you know, they're falling off their horse in the dark and... Um, so they carry on and they get up to the coast. And as they're approaching the uh, what was then a Jewish community of Rishon Luzion, which was actually a, um, a Ukrainian settlement, I think, from mm -hmm. about 18, if I remember what they told us, about 1884, uh, they come across these this divisional strength of Ottoman Turks who are cutting across in front of them and occupying the heights at a place called Ayankara. Right, let's, so, let's right. hold that and get back to that because okay. I want to look at, the, you, there's a few photos you've got in your book and this, yep. is, um, this is Chris's book, Saviors of Zion, the Anzac story from Sinai to Palestine, 1916 to 1918. And a few pictures from the first one we've got here is, is watering the horses. Now, is this in Beersheba? Yes, this is before Beersheba. It's a good photograph because it gives you an idea of the huge, huge number of animals that yeah, they actually had yeah. to feed. The logistics of, of this campaign are just mind-boggling uh, because they're dealing maybe 200-plus uh, thousand men that they have to provision, they have yep. to provide water for, uh, they have to provide feed for the horses, and it's not easy to come by. So a In lot the middle of the, of the time, desert, yeah. 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 And the, the men who rode these horses would spend maybe four hours a day grooming them. They had to groom them because there wasn't enough water to wash them. So you got to groom all the so dust had and all to the sand. Them. Yeah. So while they were an elite force, they had the major responsibility at the same time. Uh, so that's a very good picture. So you're an elite show. soldier, but you're also just a groomsman. Sure. And uh, the Germans, when they sent their planes across, would bomb the horse lines 
because if they could destroy the horses, then they They'd take the soldiers. They crippled the soldiers, yeah, take, didn't take the they? Kid, so the, the, the first uh, the first sound of a coming plane, the, the soldiers would dash out of their tent in whatever state of dress or undress they were in to scatter the horses into the desert. It right. was to protect the horses at, at all costs. As they come back. We've got this photo of uh, Besheba, which is around that time? Yes, exactly at that time. Uh, there's a lovely mosque in this picture and a park which the Germans kindly built for the Arabs. How nice. That was about the Not only good thing at all, that it? came out of it. Well, there's a whole story to be told about the Arab, or the Ottoman Turks, really, and the Germans, because we're dealing with Prussian generals, men with names like Kress von Kressenstein. Oh, yes. Um, who was a, He was called the, the Fox of the Desert in World War I. He ran a guerrilla warfare against the British. Otto, uh, yeah, Kress von Kressenstein. Well, they're Prussians, you know. Yeah. And so the Turks didn't really like working with them. They didn't trust them. They, the Germans were arrogant. They were even known to whip um, recalcitrant soldiers. So the Ottoman Turks had no time for the Germans and they wouldn't tell them what their plans were. Right. So the Germans were running the show without knowing really what was happening. And it worked very well for the Allies. The other thing about Beersheba, it's in the south. You know that Turkey's up in the north, yes. right? Well, the, the Ottoman Turks, they, were, they wanted their focus on Baghdad, which was even further to the east. Yeah. And so the Germans uh, raised a, a, an elite force to go and capture Baghdad. And they were on, halfway on the way to doing that when they suddenly realised that if they lost Palestine, it wasn't much good holding on to Baghdad. No. So they rerouted everybody uh, down to the battlefield at Beersheba, but they arrived about two weeks too late. So no. it took an awful lot of time. There were very few roads, very few rails. It was and very part of primitive. that is because of the lack of communication between the Turks and the... And just sheer, I think... I read somewhere where it took something like three months to travel from one side of the Ottoman Empire to the other yeah. because there were the mountains, the Caucasus, yep. and, uh, you know, every, it was a... It was a huge empire. It was a huge empire. Yeah, and, and it had been decaying for 100 years. Yeah. But we do... I mean, part of the, part of the problem is that, that we in New Zealand never got taught our history. No, we never um, did. And when we think of World War II, uh, World War I, we simply think of the, uh, the Germans or the Prussians and the Allies, and the, yes. you know, and the French, that's it, and the Russians uh, maybe. Yeah. But we don't we don't think of Africa, North Africa, Palestine in that area. Well, if you think strategically for a minute, you'll realise that that the Middle East was the key to India, and the British knew that, and the French knew that, and the Russians knew that. Yeah, and they'd fought the Crimean War in the middle of the 19th century over that very thing, so it was an old stamping ground for. Uh, controversies yeah. and, and, and wars to try and have hegemony, if you like, over that sort of area. Uh, and the British and the French were very determined to hold on to it at the end. They knew the empire was going to fall, but they wanted to make sure the Russians didn't get it. And just to give you a bit of an, a slant on Gallipoli, retrospectively, the Russians expected that the Allies, having conquered Gallipoli, would then hand it over to the Russians. That whole Gallipoli Peninsula, yeah. they would occupy Istanbul, they didn't contribute tuppence to the war itself. But I have the suspicion, and I'm sure historians would have said so, that the British weren't all that sorry to lose Gallipoli because they certainly didn't want a Russian presence there. No. Not so that there's a lot them. of politics that a lot of people don't actually know because they just think that the British made a stupid plan to go and try and capture Gallipoli. But actually, if it had worked, it would have been a pretty smart idea. Yeah. And the other thing that happened, we've mentioned that the casualties at Gallipoli, again, we'll just go away from that in a minute, but it does bear on Palestine. 
The Turkish losses were were forty thousand. Oh, sorry, the British losses were forty thousand men. Yeah. The Turkish losses were eighty thousand. Where did those soldiers come from? Well, they withdrew them from Palestine and they withdrew them from okay. the Balkans. They were their elite force that they met at Gallipoli. So by the time Gallipoli was over, tragic from a human point of view, but from a military point of view, it had weakened the the grasp of the Ottoman and the Germans actually on the Holy Land, on Palestine. So so these Turks would have been, the some of that 80,000, they would have been in Palestine. So this whole uh, Battle of Ayankara that we're going to take a look at yes. it, 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 and Besheva, which uh, we've just seen, we would have lost badly because it, there would have been so many more so- Turkish soldiers there. Absolutely. In fact, the Turkish opposition that the Australian and New Zealanders faced in Besheva was the same opposition, the same core that they faced at Gallipoli. Right. We hear a lot about uh, Kemal Ataturk um, and uh, his inspirational yeah. leadership of the Turks on Gallipoli. Well, he was still stuck up in the north. I think he was controlling Haifa or something like that. He would not work with the Germans. Right. So there was a lot of housekeeping problems that they had to try and keep a semblance of unity. But as you say, so, okay, we left the story when we went up so, to yep, the coast. So we're going, we've got two more photos here. Is this part of Beersheba or is this part of Ayankara, this, this one, is, Tel Saba? The, the, these two last pictures, uh, number number three and number four that we're looking at here, Rob, uh, this is a picture taken on the top of Tel Saba when the New Zealanders took the, took the hill the hilltop. So th- this is the, this is this is the tell that we were just talking about before outside Beersheba. Yes, looking down with, onto with the With the Turkish plane. machine guns that the Kiwis, yes. and this is the Kiwis that took the post. That's, that's so. It's a remarkable picture, isn't it, when you yeah. think about the circumstances by which in which these photos were taken. Yeah. And then this other one is the the Australians actually charging into yes, Beersheba. That's the picture of the Australians yeah. charging. There, are, the Australian historians argue a little bit that it might have been a put up job afterwards, uh, just for the oh, for the photo for the photo, <laughs> yeah, photo but, off. Um, no, it's as authentic as we've got anyway of it. So, right. so we've so that's that. we've we've taken Beersheba. We've got the wells. We've got some water. We're now trying to cut off this Turkish retreat. Yes, and the Kiwis are heading up towards a place called Ayankara. All right, so we're in. Beersheba is the 31st of October. It's easy to remember. So uh, New Zealanders, there's a bit of mucking around while they're trying to mop up around there. But uh, the story reconnects around about the 14th of November, a fortnight later, up the coast at this place, which we call Ayankara. The the Israelis talk about it in terms of the town, which I can never remember what it was. Um, the thing that I didn't realise, Rob, until I got there was this was not a battle fought in a narrow space. It was fought across three ridges, yep. which might be as much as six kilometres apart. And when you realise that these are horse fighters, they rode their horses from one part of the battle to the other. They didn't stroll across. So sometimes you think, well, why, you know, why was it so slow getting help? Well, they were a long way away. That's a long way away. Yeah, we've actually got a map of it here, um, of the battle, and that's. Uh, and I don't know if you can if you can work out maps or or not, but um, the, you know you can see the ridges on there. And that's these are orange orchards that you're looking around yeah. to the to the right of the picture. And these 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 red lines these are individual engagements, are they? These are the New Zealand. These are the the red lines are actually the New Zealanders. Um, starting at the very bottom, CMR is the Canterbury yep. Mounted Rifles. They went off to chase Turks that were in the or- orange orchards okay. and were not seen again that day. 
Uh, they were too far away to call them back. The major battle happens in the middle where we find the Wellingtons dismount and go up this ridge towards the crest, taking out machine gun posts at that's, different that's times. That's those centre ones, yep. The Auckland Mounted Regiment was on the left flank. They were supposed to be in reserve. But in fact, that the, the left flank was also the major Turkish um, position. And there were various rumours about cavalry coming to attack. So the so, New Zealand commander, Cap McCarroll, pushed up that way. Yeah. So were they in contact with each other? I mean, no. as you say, the Canterbury oh, well, guys, they're off, they're off to the east chasing oranges and Turks. Yeah, forget about them for the rest of the day. But, but the Aucklanders and the, and, and the other, um, which, was, which was the other, Wellington? Wellington in the middle, Wellington Canterbury the, to the right, yeah, Auckland, Auckland to the, the left. left. So were, were Auckland and Wellington able to talk to each other and Well, uh, not in the conventional sense of the word. They would have had probably riders who would ride with the message. Because what actually happened, to cut a long story short, in the afternoon, the Aucklanders faced an intense attack within metres of the Turkish line. They were hurling hand grenades at each other. There were machine guns holding them down. So they sent across to the Wellington Regiment, who dispatched some of their men to come and clean out the, the Turks. Yeah. Um, and that was a cause of uh, um, some of the soldiers who were involved in that. Of course, they, they were killed. Warren's uh, grandfather was in that, and he was the only one who survived. But a Major Twistleton was recommended for the Victoria Cross after that. Never got it because the British didn't like awarding Victoria Crosses to non-professional British soldiers. Right. I think there was only one Australian got a VC in this theatre of the war at all. But there was some. It's a yeah, fascinating a story of courage it, and, yeah. he, and heroics. Yeah. And the end of the day, we had uh, well, eventually died of wounds: fifty-three men and one hundred and forty wounded. And the Israelis uh, would tell us, uh, the historians would say, well, this was New Zealand's significant moment in this whole campaign, partly because New Zealanders are alone in this battle. The Australians who were part of the division were actually further over to the east. Yeah. So it was New Zealand commanders controlling New Zealand forces. Yeah. And um, that was probably the first time in history that it actually happened. And this is a significant place because this this is a it's a retreating Turkish army that that don't it's like I mean if you get past here if I've got it right you get past here then it's no it's no coming back. Well, it's like like we've pushed you out. This was an attempt to hold the line. This was the last attempt the Turks the, ever the made to, yep. to stop the British advance. After that, they retreated up yeah. to beyond Gaza and uh, across the the river um, Aouja was the, the name that the Israelis had. It's now the River Yakon that flows through Tel Aviv. Right. So they basically finished the 1917 war in this front over the other side of the river. So, there were a few skirmishes, uh, yeah. but that And was, we've got to remember when we're talking rivers, what they were wanting to do was to own the Suez Canal, to control the Suez Canal. They'd given that up by this yeah. stage. They, they, <laughs> they'd lost... There was yeah. never a chance of them getting back there. Yeah. Um, and I think by this stage it was really try and slow the rot, really... Yeah. And hold on for the winter of 1917, uh, which is actually an, another story. It's very worth telling, but we can't really get onto it here. Just to maybe maybe provide a bit of a contrast for Allenby, because his, his ruse was he pretended to be attacking in Gaza, but actually attacked towards the east at Beersheba. When it came to 1918, he pretended to attack from the east, but he actually attacked up the coast and across the plains of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon, yep. with 10,000 cavalry. It was the biggest cavalry charge in history. So 
It's a story that New Zealanders should be immensely proud of because their men fought um, valiantly. And the thing that makes it so interesting for us today, and that's some of these other pictures that we've got here, is that the citizens, the Jewish settlers, owned both the Australians and the New Zealanders as liberators. Right. And uh, they're there to commemorate um, the New Zealand loss and they, this picture the big, here the, of the, the obelisk, obelisk yeah, they, yeah. they were prepared to look after the memorial of the New Zealanders. Um, the thing is that the end of the war, the British Commonwealth Graves Commission collected all these little graves from around Palestine and moved them to either Beersheba in the south or to Ramla, which is the big New Zealand yeah. cemetery, and a few, I think about half a dozen um, in Jerusalem and the British cemetery up there. Uh, so this yeah. obelisk disappeared. Yeah, okay. We've got some uh, footage from the British War Commission, is it? Yes. Um, so just, just talk us through this. Right, on the 16th of November in 1917, after the New Zealanders had been at Ayankara, they, they went north to Jaffa and they found the Turks had actually left. Uh, so they... Uh, they stayed, I think, outside for a day. And the British wanted them to stay outside until someone British arrived, but the New Zealanders decided to come in anyway. So this is footage of the... This is an Australian. You can tell with his emu hat. So obviously the Aussies were there. Uh, this is the mayor's house in Jaffa. The pillars that you see there at the front are still in existence. Uh, so this became the headquarters, I think, of Brigadier General Meldrum, who ran things from here. I think it was him who ran these things. Um and uh, we get some footage as we go along of the New Zealanders trying to pretend they're guards. This is the marketplace. Overexposed footage. This is Imperial War Museum footage. The British took quite a bit of footage. They were particularly interested in Lawrence of Arabia, so they did quite a bit of uh, footage around him. And they also have got photo. They they also took footage of uh, General Allenby when he entered Jerusalem on the 11th of December in 1917. So this is the New Zealand guard on the side. He doesn't really look like he's very really thrilled with anything. Don't know who these people are. When uh, the Turks left, the Jews came back. They'd fled because they heard that the uh, the Turks were going to drive them out of the city and as they had done in other parts of, of Palestine in those days, and many families died being pushed north into the Galilee. Uh, but they came back once they, uh, once they knew that the British, or in this case the Kiwis, were there. Maybe endless opportunity to photograph people walking in and out of door, which is very important, not really. New Zealanders were never very good at doing things like standing guard. They like standing guard on wineries because while someone, some of the guys were out the front, the rest could be inside helping themselves to the product. If this was British, the guard would be very much more yes sir, no sir. Interesting picture of the clock tower still there. See the time, uh, 5 to 10. Well, it was at 10 o'clock in the morning when the New Zealanders entered Jaffa. So I'm not saying that this was a done on the same day, but obviously it was considered significant to be put on endless bits of footage looking at 10 o'clock in the morning in Jaffa. And it's still 10 o'clock in the morning in Jaffa. 
I think they shot endless amounts of footage. This is the market, the Arab market. We tend to think that Palestine was, was a pretty desolate and, and arid desert, desert, but in fact, uh, when you get here to the coastal regions, they're quite sophisticated cities. After all, the Ottomans have been here for 400 years. These are the New Zealand Mounted Rifle Boys. Um, in Sorona, if you hear Warren Dawson's story, the houses in the background are actually the German houses of Sorona, and I believe that they are still there today. At least some of them are. It was a, a German Templar community. That's not the medieval knights, but the Templars were an evangelical group of Germans who decided to go to the Holy Land and set up their communities. Probably it was the first time they'd had a wash in um, several weeks. So that's uh, that's genuine footage of, of World War One. Yes, Kiwis. there's some very interesting footage. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we've got a photo here of the commemoration in 1918, the first anniversary of this Battle of Ayankara. Yes. So, and, and this is this is where you're kind of involved with the story because you have this uh, this sculpture uh, of the silver fern. Well, just going back a little bit before we get onto the sculpture. Yep. If we go back to the book, one of the things that the regimental histories recorded when they came to talk about Ayankara was that they recorded quite large segments of the one uh, first centenary. Oh, they actually recorded it. They, the yeah, uh, Wilkie who wrote yep. uh, the Wellington Regiment, I mean, there's the, there's the pictures that we're talking yeah. about. And so they record the speeches that were made by both the president of the community of the, of the Jews yep. and also Brigadier General Meldrum who spoke back again. And when we met the other day, we, we referred to that. The Israeli ambassador referred yes. to that speech. And it's, um, it's flowery in the sense, but it, it's earnest in the sense that it talks about the fact that the people acknowledged that the Kiwis had brought liberty to them. You know, often one of the complaints you get is, oh, just warmongering British, you know, warmongering. Yeah. But it was hard for anybody who wasn't a Muslim in, in that particular period of history. They called them dimmy, dimmy and they had, yeah. to pay, they had to pay tax, extra taxes. Uh, the Jews had no rights. If a Turk wanted something, they had, be it a cloth, you know, or a coat they, they, or a sheep, they just, they just helped themselves. Yeah. So yeah. they were a very oppressed community of people. And they saw the arrival of these great Kiwi men on these huge yeah. horses as a sort of salvation for Zion, which is why I called it what I called it, Saviors of Zion. Saviors because of Zion, yeah. my focus was largely uh, how the New Zealanders impacted the Holy Land prior to the develop or the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948. Yeah. And we've got to say that, that we, we are, we're not purposely shying away from the whole Belfler Declaration and the White Paper and all of that sort of stuff. This it's all just follows that, really It's just post. that that's not relevant to, to this particular incident which no, involved right. the Kiwis, which the people of this area of Israel remember to this day. This yes, is their special fond memories of New Zealand. Yes, and they've, they've got their own written history of it. Um, I, I believe, although I'm not sure, that the speech that we quoted at uh, on the anniversary, uh, my, my friend who runs the the, um, the museum in Rishon LeZion said they actually have the Hebrew version of that speech in their files. In the, in so the, yeah. it's been a most extraordinary adventure connecting with modern Israel 
and finding that we have got a history in common. New Zealand has a blood legacy in the land, and the Jews acknowledged that as part of it. Of course, it didn't become Israel for another 50 years, but nonetheless, um, to remove the pressure of the Ottomans to establish the the British mandatory in Palestine uh, was a good thing for a start. It worked well for a while. <laughs> worked well for a while. And I think the intention of the politicians, I think, was sincere. But unfortunately, the British generals, some of them particularly, were out and out anti-Semites. Anti-Semites well, uh, and they did said, everything to wreck it. Yeah, the, I mean, the politics comes in. Later. Politics comes in. Um, and we have this photo of um, the New Zealand soldiers that died in that came, campaign at uh, Ayankara. So it was, uh, was it 140 wounded? I'm yes, to and 53 the killed is 53 the, the killed. count. Yeah. Just to tell you about that story, because it will, will appear in the narrative that we're telling, uh, that work was done by an Israeli woman called Ulla Hadar. Um, she's actually Danish, uh, but married to an Israeli. Mm-hmm. And they live on a kibbutz down towards Beersheba. And she was in the grounds of the, of the Commonwealth Cemetery one day and she saw on one of the tombstones the name of a Danish soldier. So she was intrigued to find his story. Yep. And so she tracked down his story and then she noticed that the New Zealand tombstones had no, no reference apart from the fern which always sits on New Zealand tombstones. New Zealanders, yeah. And she decided that she would actually go and follow the history of every grave that she could find. Um, and she researched their history, pulled it all together. So in that museum down in Beersheba, if there are folk who they know their, uh, their grandfathers or great uncles were down there, uh, if they died in the battle, there, there will be evidence. Wow. In fact, we have soft copy of it, so yeah. we can always find that for you. But it was a, a, a labour of love, really, and then she expanded it to the soldiers of Ayankara in the cemetery at Ramla. Yeah. So uh, it was really an extraordinary gift that she made uh, for us, um, you know, out of their, their desire to serve yeah. and honour the New Zealanders. And the Kiwis that, that who fought there and died. Yes. So how did the how did the this silver fern monument come about? The sculpture. Yes. Well, um, my friend and colleague uh, Warren Dawson, uh, we discovered actually in nine, in two thousand eighteen through amazing amazing. Well, we call it coincidence, but those of us who think the hand of God works through <laughs> God, coincidences. God incidents. Yeah. Yeah. God behaving anonymously. I've heard it sort mm-hmm. of said. Our Israeli friends who were visiting us at the time met Warren on his property and established that connection because he called his property Serona Park. And Serona was the place where the New Zealanders camped outside um, Jaffa when they, right, yeah. when they captured Jaffa in 1917. Which is just after the battle sure. that we're talking about. Yeah, in yeah. fact, on yeah. the footage that uh, the folk will see, you can see the horsemen, New Zealand horsemen there, that was the ones and the we German Sarona villages yeah. behind yeah. it. So it's really quite amazing the, the way history yeah. is preserved in some of, these, uh, some of these shots. There's not a lot of footage in the, in the Holy Land, but some of it's very significant, yeah. and uh, that's one of the very significant ones for us. So this was a chance um, that, that Warren named his property Serona, and these people were driving past? Well, they were coming from Hamilton to stay with us, as a matter of fact, and uh, they got up the hill and they saw this um, advertised cafe, so they thought they'd go and get coffee, but they took the next road, 
travel 12 kilometres down the road. I mean, that's the Looking for the cafe, yeah. Yeah. And if, they saw if, the sign. If you know it, it's, very, it's just a driveway up to the cafe, but they yes. turned off towards the Well, falls, we've had yeah. people get lost trying to find it to get to commemorations, you know, right, but these yeah. were very determined people. Long story short, Warren introduced Mikhail and Yossi Eshed to his grandfather's story, and that resulted in him being invited and Robin, his wife, being invited to Israel in 2018. Yeah. And they met the people that we'd met. They got to meet more people. They got to talk about his grandfather. His grandfather very conveniently had written a diary of these years, so it was yeah. a very meticulous account. Again, this is the guy who you said earlier that his grandfather was the only one to yes. survive the attack on, yes, the, he, on the Turkish Yes, he was part of the Wellington Mounted Regiment. Yep. They came from the Taranaki. Um, so, yeah, so that, that, that really embedded the, the Dawsons in the story. Yeah. Um, they were invited to speak at the Australian Memorial in Beersheba, which was something of a breakthrough. And when I got there in 19, uh, 2019, I keep saying 19, you know, we get our <laughs> centuries mixed up. In 2019, uh, they knew the story and, uh, and the lovely people down there, and they're actually beginning to make room for the New Zealand in their, in their story. And, yeah. People say, oh, you know, the Australians, they've taken the story, they made it their own. But actually, I'm sorry to say it, the fault lies with New Zealanders who haven't actually bothered to know the story yeah. and haven't bothered to actually assert their part of the story. Yeah. Um, well, if, if, if you go into that, politics, that's the reason, why, one of the reasons we don't know the story. But... Sure. Let's, let's not go too far into that. Let, let's not just escape too quickly because... Um, we know that Gallipoli was the first time that ANZAC was used, yes. Australian-New Zealand um, Army Corps. Yep. And uh, in Gallipoli, the Australians and the New Zealanders operated separate headquarters because temperamentally they had nothing in common. The uh, uh, New Zealanders called the Australians larrikins and the Australians called New Zealanders pig islanders. That was the sort of level of endearment, yes. you know. But I guess in the fire of battle, they began to develop a camaraderie. And when they got to, uh, when they got back to Egypt, in fact, the forces fought side by side. New Zealand commanders commanded Australian light horse, and Australian light horse commanded New Zealanders. Yeah. The overall commander was a man by called Harry Chevelle. He was the he was lieutenant general. He was the corps commander. But the New Zealander uh, William, uh, not William, Chator. Edward Chater, right. Sir Edward Chater was the Major General who ran the division. And these two men, one a Queenslander, one a uh, um, Marlborough man, the ne uh, Nelson Nelsonian yeah. really, they got on so well because they were both temperamentally alike and they were both farming, you know. Yeah. So there was unity at the high level of command and it drew the New Zealanders and Australians through this whole period very closely together. So Anzac was born I, I, I think in something like this something like this would um, would draw us together. I mean, the only times New Zealanders and Australians should be uh, at each other's throats is during the Bledisloe Cup. Sure. You said that's the only sure. time. Um, but it's, it's sometimes it's, it's a lack of the knowledge of this combined history. Yes. Uh, and, and we pit each other off against each other, which we shouldn't do. But in this instance, we're talking about something that is... Uh, in the Battle of Ayankara is uniquely New Zealand because it, it was, it was the Auckland and Wellington the, mounted rifles. Because of the that, uniqueness of the time and place. Yeah. But the New Zealand commander, uh, Chator, was actually commanding the second Australian light horse further over. Because um, they, weren't, they weren't just sitting there doing nothing. No, they weren't. And there's a, there's a fascinating story I'll just tell you about that, that um, 
when the New Zealanders arrived, the mayor of the, of, uh, the town that they were in um, came out with a cask of wine. It's told in the regimental stories, and he said, this is a gift from the oldest civilization in the world to the youngest. Ah, nice. So there was a lot of yeah. interesting overlaps. We got, we got sidetracked from the sculpture, though. Oh, the sculpture. Yeah, the, the sculpture. sculpture. All right, yes, well, it's very simple when you put, put this all together because Warren, on his property, on his development, decided he wanted a sculpture. And uh, it was about the time of the World Cup rugby. Yep. So they'd seen some of these uh, silver fern type things and Warren thought, oh, that looks good. So he had it made out of high-grade aluminium. It stands nearly five metres high yes. on his property. It's very impressive. Well, uh, when I was up there shortly after we came back from Israel uh, in 2019 and we were talking about this pyramid, this obelisk, that um, the Israelis were very keen that we could help rebuild the obelisk to sort of complete the story. Yeah. And we thought, oh, yeah, no, nah, you no. know. Really, it's, it's not it's 21st so, it's so century, century yeah. yeah. So we thought, we looked at this thing and we said, that's exactly the thing we need to send for Israel. This will honour our New Zealanders, but it will also be something that New Zealanders can be proud of when they actually visit. As you yourself know, Rob, when you go to Israel, uh, there are memorials all around Israel, yes. but they're very classy. Yeah. An obelisk would just cause derision. But uh, our sculpture, the, we work very closely with the Jewish community here, and um, they think it's marvellous. Yeah. In fact, they've sponsored us amazingly, really, to do this. So, um, so we're going to, it's not the one at Warren's place that's no, going to go, it's going to be another that one. That would solve be built. a few problems, but <laughs> no, we're leaving that one there and we're creating a new one. <laughs> To send that's, Israel. That's excellent. And as um, as um, His Excellency uh, Ran Yacobi the other day, the Israeli ambassador, said the uh, where this sculpture is going to go is actually on the way to Ben-Gurion's tomb, um, which is somewhere where a lot of people go to. Yeah. I, look, so, where they've positioned this thing will depend on the municipality. Uh, when we were in Israel in 2017 for the centenary of the of Ayn Kara, uh, the New Zealand government had actually funded what is like a tiled table overlooking the battle site, which actually tells the story. Oh, yep, yep. It overlooks um, the central part of the battlefield. I'm just really sorry we didn't know about that when we were there in 2017. Well, there you go. I mean, there wasn't very many people who did, actually, no. to be honest. So you... you you don't have to blame yourself too too much for that, you know. I'll give you, I'll forgive, the, I'll give you forgiveness. The, the only we knew about because we went to Beersheba, and yep. so you know about the Tel Saba that we saw. Yes. So because the, there's a monument, there's a monument there. there. Well, same, it, yep. similar one. In, and then um, there's the plaque uh, right up the north, which I cannot remember the place. Just before you cross over the border, there's the plaque there about the uh, the engineering for the rail. Yes, that's the, right. The, that's on yeah. the Anzac Trail. Yeah. And, and and that's it. That's that's all you hear. So this is great. Saviors of Zion. Can people buy this from you, I hope? Well, they really need to contact me. I, I, I've yeah. never really gone for the mass distributing. We we did two printings that I, I, I did it in order to take it to Israel for 2017. Yeah. So there's copies in the British Imperial War Museum. There's copies all around the place. Um, but I'm really the only one. At the moment, I think we're down to about 60. So I have to decide whether we reprint, you know. Um, yeah. Would I change anything? I might or I might not. Um, there are some good military histories that uh, have been written. There's one called Devils on Horses by uh, Terry Kinlock. Mm -hmm. It's probably, it's in, been in a lot of the libraries. It tells the military history very well. 
one thing that they don't tell, in two, in two lines, Terry refers to the occupation of Jerusalem. And for me, one of the really stunning things is the picture of Edward Allenby going into the Jaffa Gate. And beside it, there's an honour guard of New Zealand and Australian soldiers. Yeah. And you ask yourself, why are they there? Why are they the honour guard? Why are they there? Yeah. And it was because Allenby owed so much to them to get there. He because pulled of them in from the coast. Been talking about. The story is they rode without, they didn't have time to change before the um, before the ceremony. They rode straight in from the coast, from Sorona, in order to be there. 30, 33, I think, men yeah. in all. Um, so, you know, if, if that brings New Zealand's identity right into the frame of the liberation of Jerusalem, which yes. was without any, and it was an act of prophetic destiny. Yeah. And I don't hesitate to say no, that. That's true. That's, so New Zealanders that's, are that's there in that story. That that's, is another, that's story. another story. So the book's called Saviors of Zion, the Anzac Story from Sinai to Palestine, 1916 to 1918 uh, by Chris Archer. We'll give you details uh, in the description of how you can get that from Chris. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, um, Rob. It might pay to maybe watch this podcast a couple of times just to refresh yourself with the information, particularly if you are hosting Israeli travellers. Um, maybe find a photo somewhere of the the sculpture and stick that on your on your wall for them to look at sure. as well. So, and I'll uh, just put in a plug um, for funding of the, of the um, Silver Fern. We're, we've had some very generous donations and we're doing really well in the funding. But we want it to be something that comes from all of New Zealand, yep. not just a few well-heeled patrons who will give us massive checks. If we didn't tell the story, we've really failed in our, in our mission, I think, because yep. we want New Zealanders to know the story and then perhaps if they go on, as well as going to sleep on the shores of Gallipoli, they might think, well, we might just go and have a look in, the, in Palestine, in the Holy Land. Yes and follow the Anzac Trail. It's an amazingly well-documented trail. Both Australians and New Zealands overlap, but uh, there's good reason to actually go there and be proud of the Anzac legacy and particularly of the New Zealand legacy in the Holy Land. And again, details will be in the description. Chris, Very thanks good. for your time. Thanks, Rob. God bless you. Thanks for watching. Thank you.